Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, how did the party that claimed to value small government, morality, and fiscal responsibility become the party of Trump? For New York Times correspondent Jeremy Peters, the warning signs of an ascendant far right were visible for decades in figures like Pat Buchanan and Sarah Palin and in the rise of a right-wing media arm. We'll talk to Peters about his new book, Insurgency, which looks at how the establishment GOP lost its party, and about the latest political news, including the verdict in Sarah Palin's libel lawsuit against the Times. Forum is next, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. New York Times correspondent Jeremy Peters covers politics and media, and today we'll talk about both. Peters has a new book about the GOP's right-wing revolt titled Insurgency, How Republicans Lost Their Party and Got Everything They Ever Wanted. He's also been covering the defamation lawsuit against the New York Times by former Alaska governor and 2008 vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin. Yesterday, the jury delivered its verdict in that case after about five hours of deliberation, finding Palin had not been defamed by the Times when the paper incorrectly linked her 2011 political rhetoric to a mass shooting near Tucson, Arizona. Joining me now is Jeremy Peters. Welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having me. Really glad to have you. I want to start with that libel case. In many ways, there are threads of this that also connect to your book. Remind us what led up to this verdict. Like, what did Sarah Palin accuse the Times of doing? So this suit stemmed from a 2017 editorial written, uh, published by the New York Times, that contained an erroneous reference to her political action committee and its in its involvement in, in inciting the mass shooting in 2011 that left uh, Rep. former Representative Gabby Giffords gravely wounded and killed six people. The it, it, the editorial um, contained a line before it was corrected, saying that that the link to political incitement in that instance, uh, which was a reference to a map that Sarah Palin's political action committee had circulated showing animated bullseyes over congressional districts, uh, including Giffords, um, that 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 was connected to the shooting when in fact it wasn't. Uh, There had never been any evidence 
um, to the shooter saw that map um, or was politically motivated. So she claimed um, that that defamed her. The Times said, yes, we got this wrong, but we also corrected it um, and then drew ample attention to those corrections um, as, as we take our responsibility to get things right very seriously. So the jury heard arguments uh, and testimony, witnesses um, for a little more than a week in federal court in lower Manhattan and decided yesterday that the New York Times had uh, had not acted with uh, actual malice, which is the uh, legal term um, that refers to the very, very high bar that a public figure like Palin has to meet when bringing a defamation claim um, against uh, uh, against the New York against against a media outlet um, yeah. because the law has allowed for breathing room to make mistakes because it's seen as a necessary cost of debate in a free society. Yeah. So even though the uh, former opinion editor of The Times did say that, yes, we got this factually wrong, it was even a terrible mistake, I think they said, to print it, that it didn't meet the legal standard uh, to qualify as defamation. There was this really interesting procedural twist, too, with the judge, right, (laughs) leading up to the jury verdict. Yes, that's right. And there was some question. about how that might impact the case, because the judge, as the jury was deliberating just down the hall, um, announced that he planned to set aside the jury verdict if the jury found um, in Sarah Palin's favor, because he had determined that her lawyers had not met the legal burden of proof. Um, And that is is basically rendered the jury's verdict uh, meaningless, whatever they kind of ended up deciding to do. Uh, We just found out now, um, a few minutes ago, that some jurors knew of the judge's decision, even though they're not supposed to look at media accounts of the trial, they inadvertently did because their phones received push notifications uh, alerting them to the judge's decision to toss out the case. Um, they said that they that this didn't affect their decision making process. And I will say, having covered this yesterday, um, they deliberated for several hours, five hours, I believe, maybe longer um, on on Tuesday. And the judge announced this decision late Monday. So they still appear to have taken their responsibility quite seriously. But does this throw the verdict into doubt at all? Or will this strengthen an appeal potentially from Sarah Palin's attorneys if they go that route? There's not yet indication that they would go that route. Um, And, uh, you know, given that the jurors have said it didn't impact them, I think that that should make it harder for her to make that claim if she chose to. I think, you know, her appeal was probably going to be more along the lines of, of, you know, that an improper standard was applied to her because her lawyers argued that she wasn't the public figure that she once was when the Mm -hmm. Times made the claim in 2017 uh, that it later corrected. Um, that she was, you know, much, she, she wasn't working much, she wasn't involved in politics as much, and so, you know, the, the, the high legal standard that applies to public officials, uh, public figures should not apply to her. That's that could be grounds for an appeal. Um, but, 
you know, I think having lost in the jury uh, and lost with the judge, from what I'm told by legal experts, it's going to be harder for her to have a successful appeal. And then even harder for this to ultimately make it to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, which was also something that was potentially raised. Why, though? Is it because the Supreme Court is is itching to review the malice standard when it comes to defamation cases, you think, especially with this conservative majority? Uh, yes. And that's that's looming over all of this, um, because Sarah Palin is, you know, at, at her core. Um, and, and this is the, what I get into in in my book. <laughs> he is a she, she has always been very good at identifying enemies that her that that bonds her to her supporters that because they feel like those enemies are also their enemies and the mainstream media was one of them and those those sentiments only got uh more visceral during the trump years when you had a president who was calling the media the enemy of the people so she was has has always uh, been been somebody to to pick fights with the media. Going back to Katie Couric uh, and accusing her of asking gotcha questions. You know, it, it, she was also one of she had she had a um, a phrase that she used that was really kind of an eerie precursor to fake news um, when she accused reporters of, uh, of of fabricating their stories. She said, "Quit making things up," uh, which took a step further, took the criticism of the media you usually hear from conservatives a step further to accuse him of outright fabrication. Um, It was it was um, it was fake news by another name. So she was a kind of a perfect figure to to go toe to toe with an entity like The New York Times, um, which, of course, has always been um, been attacked by by the right. But there is a concerted push by not exclusively, but mostly conservative lawyers to have the libel law protections that shield journalists reopen, to revisit them because they're seen, um, uh, these lawyers would argue, as too too broad uh, and, and outdated for, for the internet era. And when there's an awful lot of, of, of misinformation and disinformation floating out there. Hmm. We're talking with Jeremy Peters, who covers national politics and uh, the media for The New York Times. His new book is Insurgency, How Republicans Lost Their Party and Got Everything They Ever Wanted. And listeners, if you want to join the conversation, I am curious when you started to notice a change in the Republican Party, whether Democrat or Republican yourself. 866-733-6786 is the number to join our conversation. 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can reach us on Instagram or email us, forum at kqed.org. And of course, if you have any questions about this libel suit as well, it's been something that Jeremy Peters has been covering all the way through. So Sarah Palin, I mean, of course, she became a household name because she was picked to be John McCain's running mate in his 2008 bid for president against Barack Obama. This is a development that you describe in your book as the tip of the spear. Mm -hmm. The tip of the spear of of what? It's a chapter titled The Tip of the Spear, yeah. Yes, so that refers to a quote from the man uh, who would become 
Donald Trump's pollster, chief pollster in, in 2016, and, and then again in 2020, um, Tony Fabrizio, who had long worked for Republican candidates on uh, both sides of, of the um, divide that I explore in the book, the, between the kind of populist renegade uh, candidates or, or insurgents, as the title uh, as the title says, and 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 the Republican establishment. And what uh, what Tony Fabrizio was was saying there is that Sarah Palin was the proto-Trump figure for the Republican Party, uh, who really more than anyone else was 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 a his closest contemporary, and she did that, uh, and and. She did that because she so understood, had an intuition for the kinds of fights that you needed to pick to galvanize your supporters, to galvanize mm-hmm. the kinds of supporters who would eventually become Donald Trump's supporters. And a lot of that was rooted in her distaste for cultural and political elites. There's an anecdote that I describe in the book um, about a, an incident involving a, a Republican, uh, the son of a famous Republican lawmaker who denigrates Sarah Palin's neighbors, the people who live in her area in Alaska, as, quote, valley trash. Uh, and, and this was a reference to the place where they lived um, north of Anchorage, the Matsu Valley, which was um, not as prosperous as Anchorage. Uh, you know, some described it as kind of rednecky. And uh, that, that they, it was a huge story at the time um, in Alaska politics. And Palin and her people took that slur and turned it around into a badge of honor. It's, it's, it, they, it, they almost had this sense of pride about being scorned by a member of the Republican establishment, by an elite. Um, and they put it on T-shirts eventually. And it was an early version of what you would see from the deplorables when Hillary Mm -hmm. Clinton uh, famously called Trump supporters that. We're talking about the rightward march of the Republican Party. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. New York Times correspondent Jeremy Peters chronicles the fracturing of the Republican Party in his new book, Insurgency, How Republicans Lost Their Party and Got Everything They Ever Wanted, essentially how the stated values of small government and fiscal responsibility got eroded and the party became one defined by Donald Trump. And one of the figures along that 
process is Sarah Palin, who we're talking about right now. And just before the break, Jeremy Peters, you were talking about how she tapped into and showed the power of tapping into sort of this this sense of resentment over treatment by the elites. And uh, clearly it got the attention of uh, larger, more establishment figures in the Republican Party, including John McCain. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship that this establishment had with this part of the party, I guess maybe people would call it the populist part of the party, and and how they saw Sarah Palin as a benefit to them and harnessing them for votes. Right, the relationship I would describe as not good. Um, And that's why eventually uh, an insurgency of them manifested itself in in Donald Trump's candidacy and, and overthrew them. But what it's it's a it's it's an interesting dynamic because you know as as popular as Palin was and and, and as much as her appeal was really really powerful um, and emotional almost with with her supporters, um, what McCain's people did when they picked her was make the same kind of mistake that Republicans in leadership positions in the party had made all along by assuming that they could bring in these insurgents, co-opt them, uh, and and make them quasi-partners in leadership. Well, they never had any uh, intention of making them full partners, which, of course, the insurgents resented. And the insurgents never really had any intention of being good faith partners themselves, because their argument was, and I think this is pretty justifiable, uh, look, we brought the votes. Our people um, we're the ones who were energized. Uh, so you owe us an awful lot. And John McCain didn't appreciate that, but also didn't appreciate how this could get away from him. How by giving Sarah Palin the tools and uh, in the, in the script, really, literally, um, to make outlandish claims against Barack Obama, that that would activate a part of the party base that was very ugly. And I get into this, which has not been reported before uh, in in significant detail, but John McCain's campaign gave Sarah Palin those words. She did not come up with a lot of this herself. Probably the most infamous phrase that she uttered when she was a candidate for vice president was when she accused Obama of, quote, palling around with terrorists. Well, that was a speech written at McCain headquarters and emailed to her before uh, she was set to go on stage at a fundraiser. So, you know, that what I think that illustrates is how I mean, you can call it cynical. Um, I know plenty of people would, but it was it was really is calculated. These the Republican establishment figures um, like those running McCain's campaign knew that this energy was out there. They knew how to whip it up. And when they did, it got away from them. Right. Well, this listener tweets, I've never been or voted for a Republican, but I'm not a Democrat either. However, what the current Republican Party has done has made me completely align and caucus with the Democrats down the ballot. This started in about 2017 for me. I've asked listeners when they started to notice the the change in the Republican Party. And uh, I'm also curious if the Rightward March has had an effect on you, on families, on relationships, on your life. You can call us at 866-733-6786. 
866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. Email us, forum at kqed.org. Kelly tweets, Newt Gingrich really got it rolling with his scorched earth policies, but Reagan is also largely to blame for completely abandoning conservative financial principles and tripling the national debt. Jeremy Peters, another person you talk about is Pat Buchanan and how Pat Buchanan also lit a match. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, well, th- I mean, that listener makes a really good point about Reagan and abandoning um, uh, principles of fiscal soundness, because that's really what the Republican Party has done all along. Right. When they were when it was convenient for them, um, usually when the Democrats were in power, they were against <laughs> high spending, um, but not when they're in charge. And there was never really a constituency for that kind of small government, low tax um, budget slashing uh, form of conservatism. It was really like a donor class thing that, that, that it was it was wealthy people um, who had kind of, you know, esoteric notions of of what um, small government conservative was. The average voter didn't care about that. And certainly most of the people who would become Donald Trump's voters didn't care about that because those kinds of policies um, oftentimes ended up benefiting big businesses. And going back to Sarah Palin for a minute and Pat Buchanan, um, they were anti-corporate in a lot of ways. I mean, Buchanan was very opposed to free trade um, because of, of what it did to the American manufacturing sector. Uh, Sarah Palin was also very hostile to the big oil companies when she was governor of Alaska. I mean, these are very populist themes. Pat Buchanan is an interesting figure, though, because while people remember him for the trade policies that, that I just described and for his um, his, his effort to um, reduce immigration, both legal and illegal, uh, the kind of America first policies that he, he would call them, um, that Trump later adopted for himself. Buchanan's uh, impetus for running for president in 1992 and challenging the sitting president, sitting Republican president um, of his own party was affirmative action. He, like many um, white conservatives at the time, and not and not necessarily all, uh, would probably describe themselves as, as conservatives, resented the fact that Bush had signed uh, a civil rights bill that expanded federal affirmative action programs. That Buchanan described this to me as the last straw for him in breaking with the establishment Bush wing of the Republican Party in in 1992, and that's why he chose to run against Bush. So you carry that through to where we are today and you can kind of see that there's, you know, there's always been this, this, this element of, of racial grievance that has been extremely powerful in Republican politics. Well, we've got calls coming in and let me go to Christine in San Francisco. Hi, Christine. Hi, how are you? Well, go right ahead. Uh, I had, uh, I guess, a comment and a, and a question. Um, my comment is that uh, things got got did start going wrong with uh, Reagan's assault on the notion of government, and that that somehow became tied in with this notion of individual freedom. That government is the problem, not the solution. And my question really goes back to the the discussion about Sarah Palin and the First Amendment standard. Uh, especially as it comes from the right, it seems that uh, even if you change the standard, most social media are not considered publishers. So they, the, the comments and the, and the stuff on Twitter and Facebook just kind of comes 
uh, and they are not, you know, they have been given uh, a legal pass on some of that. So I don't know how that's, I don't understand how mm-hmm. that will in any way deter uh, defamation, false, you know, false information. Uh, <clears throat> even if uh, newspapers were held to a slightly smaller standard, although I don't know how that works when you're trying to cover fast-breaking news and, for example, the insurrection, and it's very difficult to get all the details right uh, on the spot. Christine, thanks. I think you're tapping into some things that we will be talking more about. But Jeremy Peters, uh, your reaction to what Christine is saying? I think that it's it's spot on, and she's identified what is uh, a current in conservative thinking right now that the media enjoys too much protection uh, under these defamation laws uh, and under the Supreme Court's standard, which has stood for you know largely a half century. And the question is, what, what, what does the court do about it? And in a political climate that is very hostile to mainstream media uh, with, with a judiciary that has been pushed decidedly to the right, I, I don't have an answer for, for what does happen to those, those protections. I think it's, it's perfectly reasonable and people who, are, um, who know the legal landscape better than I do um, would say that the, there is, it's, there's a very high likelihood that the pr- protections journalists enjoy um, under the law are, are, are paired back. We're talking with Jeremy Peters about his new book, Insurgency, How Republicans Lost Their Party and Got Everything They Ever Wanted. And you, our listeners, are... Joining us with your questions and thoughts about what you're hearing at 866-733-6786, posting them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or by emailing them to forum at kqed.org. Speaking of the media, you spend a lot of time talking about how one of the reasons that basically the insurgent right got away from this establishment Republican leadership that were, thought they could always control this right wing or populist wing of the party was in part because of the rise of Fox News and a, and a major right wing media arm that I think as you describe it, um, could rouse viewers patriotic impulses, mine their darkest fears and confirm their wildest delusions. This was um, it, this was related to your discussion of Roger Ailes, of course, the CEO at Fox. Can you talk a little bit about Fox News' role and how, in many ways, um, what's happening to them or what has happened to them ha- has paralleled um, what has happened to the Republican Party yeah. to some degree? No, it's it's a it's a great question. It's a it's a it's a perfect parallel in a lot of ways because the same kind of insurgency that destabilized the leadership of the Republican Party also caught Roger Ailes uh, and Fox News by surprise. And I mean, to to, to just jump forward here, <laughs> the, look at what happened after the 2020 uh, election, right? They, Fox, um, told its audience the truth. They said that, that Biden was going to win Arizona and that he was probably going to become the next president. Well, because... Fox viewers and conservatives, Trump supporters more broadly, had been conditioned for years and years um, to believe Trump and and to disregard negative information about him. The, The viewership revolted. Trump started attacking them and their ratings started falling. And the bond that they had with their 
loyal viewers really took a hit. And that's consistent with what you have seen happen with uh, the Republican Party leadership and candidates like Palin and Trump, who came along and ended up being more powerful than the leaders uh, or the people who thought they were the leaders. Hmm. So what, what, what you have in Fox is, is a fascinating dynamic um, that now they are largely a follower of their audience rather than a leader. And Roger Ailes underestimated people like Sarah Palin uh, and, and Trump himself. I mean, there's, and, and, and really came to, to resent them. I've I seen uh, in my book in which Ailes is describing how he hates it when Donald Trump calls him, because as he says to, to one of his on-air personalities, uh, he always interrupts me, he cuts me off, he talks to me like I talk to you and I can't stand it. <laughs> well, um, well, sort of to your point, this listener writes, does it matter if Palin lost the case, the defamation case, the fact that she took on the New York Times reactivates her as a David to mainstream media's Goliath. She doesn't need to win. She just needs to stay on the radar screen. These politicians want oxygen and power. And related to media, John in Antioch writes, I first started noticing the change of the Republicans sometime in the 90s with the end of the Fairness Doctrine and with commentators like Rush Limbaugh. These were shows with continuous rants against, quote, liberals, completely one-sided and would never allow anyone or very few on his show to disagree, Randy and Cupertino also writes, it started with the phenomenon of Rush Limbaugh. I was appalled by his programming on TV, this sort of cheap cartooning criticism of people he didn't like. I saw a little bit of him early on. It became clear to me that he was really just about entertainment. And then the later idea mm -hmm. that he was some kind of a thought leader for the Republican Party was just ridiculous. You certainly mm -hmm. write about Limbaugh, um, Jeremy. Yeah. Peters. No, that's a very astute observation because the, 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 the cartoonish um, lampooning of, of his enemies, his opponents, that the listener describes, um, like, who does that sound like, right? I mean, that's Donald Trump. And what my book does is attempt to show how Trump and, and Limbaugh were really one and the same. Uh, fundamentally, they were both broadcasters and entertainers whose desire was, above all else, to expand their base, to be popular with their audiences, more popular than anyone else out there. I mean, Limbaugh says this, as I report in the book, as, as far back as the 90s, he was saying, look, I'm not interested in putting some township water commissioner on my show for an interview. I want people to keep coming back. Uh, so I'm going to give them what they want. Yes. And that's exactly what Trump did. He gave his voters what they wanted. There's a quote that I have from him. It, it, this is after he's been elected president and he's speaking to a, uh, a, the chief of staff at the time for Mike Pence. And he's insecure about his standing with social conservatives and evangelicals. And he says, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm just going to keep giving them whatever they want so they keep coming back to me. And that's essentially what he did. And as Limbaugh here is, is, was a figure influencing how Trump would govern as well. Um, because around that same time, I, I report that what Trump did is he had uh, Limbaugh to Mar-a-Lago. This is during the, the presidential transition in 2000, late 2016. Limbaugh comes to visit him at Mar-a-Lago and gives him advice that Trump recalled to me that he remembers to this day, which is significant because let's face it, 
Donald Trump is not a very introspective guy. He doesn't like recalling where he came up with his ideas or who influenced him because he doesn't like giving anyone else credit. But he said to me that he remembers Limbaugh telling him, don't cut deals with Democrats. Don't do what the Bushes did because the Democrats will never give you any credit and they will always hate you for it. And that pretty much is how Trump governed. He always governed to the right, never reaching into the center uh, or or ever to the left. So- it's all about, and that goes back to, you know, they, that, that line, they will always hate you. Again, it's about your enemies. And that's, that's what, what, what Trump understood and continues to understand is, is so motivating for his people. And as you allude to, you sat down for several interviews with Trump for this book, with people like Steve Bannon and so on. Um, We're talking with Jeremy Peters, who's written the book, Insurgency, How Republicans Lost Their Party and Got Everything They Ever Wanted. And I asked you, our listeners, if you wanted to share when you noticed the change in the Republican Party or, or how that rightward march has affected you. And Mary writes, the only change I notice is that they began to say the quiet parts out loud. The Republican Party of today is no different than it has ever been for African American people. I'm just wary of constantly trying to point this out to others in the past, only to have my perspective dismissed. Aaron tweets, I've noticed my conservative family get slowly radicalized over the past few years, especially. This is the logical evolution of Reaganism, which has framed the government as the enemy, and the concept of a shared society itself has something to oppose in the name of individualism. And let me see if I can squeeze Marion before the break. Mary and Morgan Hill join us. Hi, Mary. Hi. I just want to share that um, I'm married to someone almost 45 years now who's a registered Republican, lifelong. I'm a Democrat. We're, we're a bipartisan family. And it was in the election when John McCain chose Sarah Palin as his running mate that my Republican husband said, no, he wanted John McCain as a moderate Republican. And he just thought that Sarah Palin would be a disaster as actual president. And he felt like his party had given in, like, and, and he lost respect for John McCain's um, leadership that he would allow that. Mm-hmm. So I, I just tell you, he, so he's gone over to the Democrat side and was grateful that Joe Biden was the vice president to Obama back then. So it, it's a middle ground situation. And I don't know how people like my husband can get the Republican Party back on track. Mm-hmm. Well, which, which, which he appreciated under others, including Nixon, who brought in the the EPA for us and other science-based ways of functioning as a planet. You know? Well, we'll explore that question, Mary. Can it get back on track? After the break, I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're taking a closer look at the rightward march of the GOP with Jeremy Peters, whose new book really chronicles that and the people who were really uh, pivotal in that process. The book is Insurgency, How Republicans Lost Their Party and Got Everything They Wanted. We were talking about Fox News just before the break, uh, Jeremy Peters. And so, yes, while they did lose some viewers for a period of time uh, after they declared Arizona accurately that it had gone for President Joe Biden, um, but then they've gotten those viewers back largely by, as you say, following now that lead. And so I, I guess it really raises this question of, how far is this going to go, both uh, with the media helping a political arm that seems loath to stand up to this shift in any way? I think the answer to that is the same answer uh, to the question of, of how far the Republican Party will take this. How long will they continue to be subservient to Donald Trump and his whims and delusions? Uh, how long will they continue to to be to let that dictate their future? And it's as long as the audience wants it, as long as the voters want it. This Republican Party, with a handful of of notable exceptions, Mitt Romney, Adam Kinzinger, Liz Cheney's, the, the, those types, um, is not full of profiles in courage who are willing to stand up for the truth and. Trump is lying to people. I mean, let's let's just state it like it is. He's lying to them about what happened in the election, and they go along with it because he is their ticket to political power. And the voters provide Trump that power. Until the voters decide that they don't want to hear what Trump is saying anymore, the Republican Party will continue to go along with him because they are afraid of their voters. And Fox will continue to program the way it's been programming since uh, after January 6th. Um, until its viewers tell them that it doesn't want that anymore. It's just, it's very simple. It's very transactional. And in that sense, very Trumpian. And we really can't look to the leadership in this, do you think? I ask because, well, you have this interesting anecdote of Ronnie Jackson during the January 6th attack on the Capitol, like literally in his office, removing his tie so that if people get to him, they can't strangle him with it. He's talking about his own party base. Right. The people he thought he represented. And then how quickly does he put that aside in his mind and uh, a few hours later vote to overturn the results of the election because that's what those people wanted. I mean, they were they they could have been ready to seriously injure him or kill him. And he was willing to do the president's bidding because that was his path to political relevance and power. And you talk about profiles and courage here in California, people who are against this rightward march of the party see Kevin McCarthy as a largely as largely a lost cause when it comes to a profile and courage around Trump as well. Mm -hmm, completely. What do you right? think uh, based on your conversations? Yeah. Well, so Kevin McCarthy, the, the thing that pe that people always say about Kevin McCarthy, the Republicans, people who've worked with him, is that he's a political survivor and uh, and is driven by ambition. That ambition is to become Speaker of the House, and he will do whatever it takes to achieve that. So if that means 
not that means standing up to President Trump and then backing down and capitulating. Um, that's that's what you're seeing because remember, as as I describe in the book, it was a pretty surreal scene that that McCarthy on the day of Trump's second impeachment after January 6th said that Trump bore responsibility for January 6th, that he would, he should even be censured that Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the house would support a censure of Trump. Well, he changed his tune pretty fast too. And that type of, uh, of regret remorse, um, I mean, I would even say it was it was it was discussed on McCarthy's part initially watching what Trump supporters were doing to the seat of American democracy. It's just there's just no place for it. If you want to be a person who has a leadership role uh, and a future um, in Donald Trump's party, because many of those people believe that he's going to be elected president again. And I've got to say, having spoken with Trump and watched as he grew angrier and angrier and more detached from reality over this this false notion that he'd been robbed, cheated of victory. He wants to avenge what he thinks is this grave injustice. And unless something changes uh, that that I don't uh, foresee, that none of us can foresee, I think he's going to run. Hmm. Let me go to Diana in Oakland. Hi, Diana. Oh, hi. Thank you for taking my call. I uh, was a Republican for 30 years, and basically I'm Midwestern conservative type leaning. And I found that the 30 years that I was in the GOP uh, were bookended by two things that of note. One, at the beginning in 77, when I read the platforms, um, there was no anti-abortion plank. 78 is when that occurred. And then in 2007, the racism aimed at Obama was my breaking mm. point. Well, Diana, thanks for sharing. For Edward in Union City, Edward writes, I was a Republican but left the party in 92 when Pat Robertson was given time at the RNC. Mixing religion and politics to that degree was a bridge too far for me. Curtis writes, the Trump and McConnell team was effective in giving the GOP huge tax cuts and conservative judges and justices. Now McConnell seems to have distanced himself from Trumpism. Is this the beginning of a fracture in the party where the most senior Republican is running away from the de facto leader? What do you think, Jeremy Peters? So I, the, the question is, 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 should, is this the beginning of we... McConnell seems to have distanced himself from Trumpism? Oh. He said some things interesting, like, for example, he was frustrated or claimed to be by the RNC saying that what happened on January 6th was legitimate political discourse and other things in the past. Curtis is asking, is this the beginning of a fracture in the party where the most senior Republican is running away from the de facto leader? Meaning so McConnell. What... Yeah, I think what's important to remember there is that we've seen McConnell do this many times before. He's delivered denunciations of Trump uh, from the Senate floor um, in, in a number of instances. And uh, it's it, it, there's also been, as there are today, uh, opinion leaders in the, that wing of the Republican Party opining in the pages of the National Review and the Wall Street Journal that 
that Trump uh, must be stopped. Um, I mean, we've seen this before and I don't see how it's that much different to the extent that it would change um, the, the fact that Trump remains the sole leader uh, in command of the, the Republican Party. When I say in command, I mean in, in command of what its elected leaders can say, uh, can, can think, um, can, what types of people they, they support for, uh, they can endorse for public office. Um, there's, there's no, there's no constituency in the Republican party right now that's big enough to support a McConnell, a Romney, you know, Adam Kinzinger type, um, type leader that's capable of displacing Trump. Well, Robert writes, there's one issue that makes all others take a back seat. Do you believe in democracy as a form of government? Republicans across the land, from their leaders to average citizens, are shouting to us every day that their answer is no. Jeremy, you uh, talked about Trump's pollster, Tony Fabrizio, earlier and mentioned, you know, this sort of demographic shift initially, like there were these Dennis Miller Republicans, I think, and then the InfoWars Republicans, who you mm. describe as the Republican, sort of the right wing part of the Republican base today, who believe in at least four of the baseless theories spread by QAnon, for example. Can you just give me a sense of how big this group is in oh. the Republican base? I can, because Trump's pollster put a number on it. It's 10% of the Republican base. That's incredible to me because, you know, you go from the, uh, in 1997, when Trump's pollster uh, Fabrizio is looking at the Republican electorate and who's, who's voting Republican, uh, there, there was a five to 10% group slice of the pie there that called themselves progressive Republicans. I mean, think about that. That's an antiquated notion now. I mean, there's no, he, what he told me when I interviewed him for the book is by 2007, when he, he re-ran the same survey of the Republican electorate, that group was gone. Um, it, it was statistically insignificant as a share of the Republican electorate. So fast forward, that, that 10% that was progressive has been replaced by a 10% who believe in conspiracy theories. Like, not just... Uh, like one or two, as you correctly point out, but four of the QAnon conspiracy theories, that is a level of, of delusion and a detachment from reality that you can trace right back to, to Donald Trump. And it's one that Republican leaders, uh, the, you know, the theme I keep coming back to is, is insurgency. And that's the kind of, of rogue um, element that you always saw Republican leaderships uncertain um, about how to deal with it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so I don't. I, I think you could you could argue that Donald Trump and and you know his people in the Republican Party are not immune from those same disruptive, destabilizing forces um, because those those are the QAnon people now. Those are the, the InfoWars Republicans that Trump's own pollster denied at 10% of the party pose a real threat to his ability to hold control because they, they don't believe what he believes. I mean, he, they're farther to the right than he is. And that's, what's, that's how this always gets away from Republicans. That's, that's where they make the mistake of catering to the fringe uh, and, and losing control of it. So we are 
still along the path of this uh, rightward march. We're not nearing its end. You're talking about the base even getting to the right of Trump. And Gary in Grass Valley writes here, if Trump goes to jail for the financial mess in New York, what does Mr. Peters think will happen to the Republican Party? Uh, you're not suggesting that even if that happened, say that that was a liability, that that this would be a, a course correction and and the party might cycle back to say some of the thoughts that it had about the direction it should go, you know, say back in like 2012 or something after Romney. You're saying that the signs you're seeing are a continued march to the right? Yeah. Uh, for, for, for the time being, um, you know, when I wrote this book, I, I knew that I wasn't going to be at the end of the story um, on the last page. Uh, I just didn't know at what point in this this transformation of the Republican Party uh, I've, I've, I'd hit. Um, right now, I think it's probably somewhere in the middle. It's definitely not at the end. And I think that, you know, much, much like I said that, you know, we've seen this movie before with Mitch McConnell uh, denouncing Trump. Um, we've seen it before with these investigations of Trump. And I think people should really just kind of put, out, put it out of their heads that he's going to jail um, or that really that he'll be, he'll be indicted. I think that's just, it's, it's hasn't happened yet for a reason um, because he's been very careful. Uh, and I, the, if, he, if he is indicted, um, I think that that's actually a political asset for him. He has thrived and he has, he's thrived on the fact that he can tell, he can claim persecution. He can say, look what they're doing to me. I, I'm, you know, this powerful man, this, this multimillionaire, although he'd probably say billionaire, um, who, who, who is, is, is being targeted by this rogue government that these jackbooted thugs coming after me just like they're coming after you, you, you know, you people engaged in legitimate political discourse on January 6th. It's all about being able to say that there's an abuse of authority happening and he's being victimized by it just like the little guy is. We're talking with Jeremy Peters. His book is Insurgency, How Republicans Lost Their Party and Got Everything They Ever Wanted. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Susan in Mountain View. Hi, Susan. Thanks for waiting. Hi, can you hear me? I can. Um, I'm not sure that that you, Jeremy, will want to answer my question, but I, I'm I, I'm curious what you think the Democrats' role in this is. What is our responsibility? What are we doing that is fueling the fire of this extreme mm. um, position on the far right? Susan, thanks. Thoughts mm, for what great. Susan's asking here, Jeremy. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think that look, the the, the and, and um, this is this this will hit. Uh, it is hitting close to home um, for a lot of people in the Bay Area right now because your recall election with the school board, right? I think the Democrats in in some cases have embraced policy changes and ideas that are very unpopular with the mainstream American, and they have allowed the Republican narrative and distortion of some of those ideas 
uh, to take hold. Um, they haven't pushed back on it forcefully enough. I mean, I heard Nancy Pelosi saying the other day that, you know, that defund the police is not the position of the Democratic Party. Of course, it, it, it never has been. Um, but if you turn on Fox News, that's what you would see, right? You turn on Fox News, you, you hear that all of these, these unpopular ideas are are, are what Biden wants and that he's being controlled by people like AOC and Ilhan Omar when you know, that, that is yeah. demonstrably false. Right. So it's it, Democrats do own some of this uh, for not pushing back on that kind of stuff early enough when they could have. Well, we had a conversation recently where I remember somebody saying that one of the things to really pay attention to, if you want to stop or to try to push back, uh, is to actually pay attention to your local elections and to positions like elected officials, uh, people who have the capacity to count ballots, not count ballots, and so on, and how the GOP is focused in that direction. Is that the next shoe to drop, do you think? Is that what you're watching for in terms of the mm -hmm. impact? So I think this is a question that actually relates back to what we were talking about at the beginning with the, the attack um, on press freedoms. And it's, it's incredibly hard to be a civic-minded citizen who pays attention to local government when the news media is, is decimated. When you know, I mean, I spent a, a lot of my early reporting career in state capitals and watching how hollowed out the press room would, was uh, from the time that I started to the time that I left. There's just not... A, 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 I mean, frankly, there's not a constituency. There's not like huge readership of, of that kind of news, but um, there's just not a, an advertising base, a uh, business model that, that's, that supports it anymore. And furthermore, the, when they're under attack, a threat from lawsuits and a threat that, that the laws could be loosened so, so, these, entities, so these news organizations are, just, are, are even more vulnerable um, to very expensive suits. You know, it just if I think it further weakens the, the kind of transparency that we need hmm. um, to be good citizens. Well, John writes, my sisters and I never had any real arguments in my whole life until Trump came on the scene. My sisters had real hardship and jumped into Trump's side just as soon as he appeared. I did my best to educate them to verifiable facts. But till this day, Trump still stands between us. Well, Jeremy Peters, thank you very much for sharing uh, your insights today. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And I appreciate the same from our listeners and their um, their experiences as well. Ariana Pale produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. You've been listening to Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.